With its heartfelt stories, endearing characters, and gorgeous animation, Star Wars Visions captured the ever-elusive Star Wars feeling, and we could not be more excited to talk about it in depth today on Skytalkers. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this much anticipated episode from Charlotte and I recording <laughs> this episode on visions because we've been trying to record this episode, I think, for two and a half weeks and have been met with so many challenges. <laughs> This is going to be either our worst episode or our best episode and like no in between just because of the amount of challenges that we had to – like we had to climb a mountain basically to record this episode. Like Caitlin had – Caitlin was dealing with like apartment issues. She had a literal leak from her ceiling. What else happened? Well, I had – So much happened. My bathroom. Oh, your – yeah, your bathroom. Your computer died. I had to go get my computer – a factory reset on my computer. That was a couple of days. You had like some crazy work stuff come up. Yeah. It was just, just it was it was not happening. It was not. <laughs> it was it was really not. <laughs> but but today feels like the best day ever. Like I woke up, I was like, today's the day. We're recording this and I'm so excited. And I honestly I got my hair cut today. Like you know when you get your hair cut and you're just feeling really good? I felt good about the recording today. I felt good about getting my hair cut. I felt good. So we're here and it's happening and hopefully there is no technical <laughs> difficulties. Yeah. yeah, this is um this is my first recording on basically my brand new computer that's been factory reset and I had to like reinstall all the microphones and stuff oh on our recording software and yeah, so we're just really crossing our fingers here. <laughs> really thriving. Truly, truly yeah. thriving. It's still one of your first recordings in your new apartment too. I know. So. That's the other thing. Well, an- another thing about this is that we recorded a reaction after we had this like amazing time interviewing the creators. We recorded a reaction. Yeah. So we have had one episode about vision, so it's not like we haven't covered the territory at all, but then Keelan and I went to California for a week and we went to Northern California. We went to San Francisco and Napa and we, we have, we come bearing stories. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's another reason why this episode is del- like slightly delayed. And I'm going to stop apologizing now because I want Caitlin to tell the story uh-huh. of, well, okay. So right. a couple <laughs> things. So as big Star Wars fans, as everyone knows that we are obviously, Caitlin and I had to make the pilgrimage together to the Lucasfilm offices in the Presidio in San Francisco, which we did. We did that. We went to the Yoda Fountain. Sadly, because of COVID, the office like is not open and you can't walk in the like entrance area, which used to be open to the public, but you can still go to the Yoda Fountain and then go to the Starbucks there. And Caitlin and I <laughs> went to that Starbucks a lot. <laughs> Like probably like too much in the two and a half days that we were in San Francisco. Anyway. Yeah. So we did that together. Caitlin and I have both been there separately, but uh, never together. So it was really cool to go 
to get a picture together in front of the Yoda fountain. But the reason why we were in California was we love wine and we really wanted to go to Napa for a long weekend. So Caitlin and I flew into San Francisco, we rented a car and we drove to Napa, which is only like two hours away from San Francisco. And on the way, we were like, we have to do a drive-by of Skywalker Ranch, which is like 25 to 30 minutes north of San Francisco. So I'm going to let Caitlin take over the rest of the story. (laughs) Yeah, this story, (laughs) so funny. So we decide that we're going to drive to Skywalker Ranch, right, to do a drive-by. And Charlotte and I have actually done, I say Charlotte and I, but really it's me. I've done a lot of like deep creeping on Skywalker Ranch. (laughs) Which sounds really creepy, but I just I've read a lot like about the news of Skywalker Ranch in that area, like throughout the years. This is like what I do in my job day today, so it's not super creepy, but it felt kind of weird. But anyway, so I've done a lot of research on Skywalker Ranch and just kind of it's like its footprint in the valley where it's located. I just find it interesting. It's in a very kind of mostly residential area, and then you have Skywalker Ranch, and I always think that kind of stuff is interesting. So anyway. Skywalker Ranch is located on a road called Lucas Valley Road, which whenever you read about Skywalker Ranch on Lucas Valley Road, they always make a note to be like, it's not named after George Lucas. This is just a coincidence, (laughs) which I find also incredibly funny and interesting that, of course, George Lucas picked this plot of land on Lucas Valley Road, but it's just a coincidence. (laughs) Nothing more, nothing less. So... Skywalker Ranch is located about like 10 miles down, 8 to 10 miles off Lucas Valley Road, like from the main interstate highway. So Charlotte and I pull off. We start heading down Lucas Valley Road. We're vibing. We've got the tunes going. We're in the fun rental car. You know, we're ready. We're ready to just like pass it (laughs) just to say that we did it. And so as we're driving down this road, we get to this traffic stop because it's a two lane road and we get to this traffic stop and they're doing, they're like taking down a tree or they're trimming like tree branches that are hanging over the road. Not really sure what they're doing, but basically one lane of the road is closed. So you know what that means? You have to stop on one side. They let the other side of the road pass and then you switch off, right? Like we've all been in that situation before. So Charlotte and I, we're probably like five miles outside of Skywalker Ranch now. And we're sitting at- But the physically tr- on the road. Yeah, yeah. We're way. physically like, on the road. We're, we're in the close. Car. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're sitting in this traffic stop and we're just, we're you know, we're talking and we're like, you know, wouldn't it be so funny if like someone passed us from, from Skywalker Ranch? Like, because we're seeing all these cars come by us on the other side of the road. And we're like, wouldn't that just be so funny? And we're like, let's, LOL, let's keep a lookout. <laughs> so- we're looking out the window and we go, you know, what if it's like John Favreau or something? And I, listener, I, two seconds later, John Favreau drove by us. <laughs> like, I, I, I was, and the blood curdling scream we let out. We were clipping car. out, flipping out. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Frankly embarrassing. I'm glad none of you were there, but <laughs> it was it really was a situation of what if someone passes us, brief pause, what if it's John Favreau? John Favreau passes us in his car <laughs> on the other side of the road. It was shocking. It was truly shocking. 
<laughs> I we were screaming. I I'm sh- pretty sure because the car was stopped, right? Like I'm pretty sure I put it in park because we were waiting for a long time. Yeah. So we were and we were close to the cars that were passing on the other side it's a too. Road, and the, yeah. yeah, and the cars were going slow enough that we could individually see who was in the car. Yeah. So a hundred percent it was John Favreau. It like. was a hundred percent John Favreau. And Caitlin and I have actually we've been up close with John Favreau before at the solo premiere. So like you know what? We know what he looks like. <laughs> <laughs> it was him. <laughs> it was um yeah, yeah. And like the thing is, is like right, Charlotte said, like the cars were going really slowly and like where we were parked was also a bend in the road. Like Lucas Valley yeah. Road is kind of bendy in certain areas. So you like you have to go slow along it anyway. And yeah, it was hundred percent him. And I I would be surprised if he did not hear like behind him, like what was that sound? <laughs> Because the reaction was instantaneous from both of us. It's not like we looked at each other and were like, was that John Favreau? Hmm, I don't know. It was both of us being like, oh my God. That's him. Because we had, it was like we summoned him. It was like we summoned him. It was, we manifested him. It was the most like Skywalker Ranch thing that could have happened beyond like seeing Dave or George. Like it, it was crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, then, all right, just to just to conclude the story, we continue driving <laughs> and we do a quick little drive by of an unmarked gated area, which is Skywalker Ranch. And yeah, we kind of look around and turn around. It was just so freaking beautiful. You can totally see where they or was inspired by certain areas with like the near redwood trees, mm-hmm. like for the Ewok movies and things like that. You can't really see anything from the road. Yeah, it was just great. It was awesome. It was great. Yeah, yeah. You can't see anything from the road, but you can see John Favreau on the road. So, <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> and then on the way back from Napa, so we had a great time in Napa. It was amazing. On the way back from Napa, we decided to stop in San Anselmo, which is incidentally where George Lucas lives, and he has. Oh, he, Caitlin. You know what? You know better than I. I do about. Imagination Park. You tell the listeners about Imagination Park. So Imagination Park, I actually think we're probably going to do like a bonus mini episode on this later. Mm -hmm. But there is a park in San Anselmo, which is where George Lucas um, and Marsha Lucas first moved in the 70s with like basically George's American graffiti money. They bought a house in San Anselmo, which is like 20 to 30 minutes outside of San Francisco, if I'm remembering how far we drove. But basically in the downtown area, there is this little park called Imagination Park, and it has a Yoda statue and an Indiana Jones statue. And the town basically asked George Lucas to fund something in like that area of the town. And eventually they all came to the decision to create Imagination Park. And George Lucas funded this cute little park downtown. And it's right next to the town hall, uh, city hall, and the public library. And it's super cute. And when Charlotte and I went there, there were like children with literal ice cream cones. And like, it was so picturesque. (laughs) It was really cute. And yeah, if you are someone who likes to collect those Yoda fountain statue pictures, like apparently we do now. We we just need one more. And that's the Skywalker Ranch one. It's the the Skywalker Ranch Yoda. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it is. Because (laughs) this statue of Yoda is, I guess, identical to the one at Lucasfilm in San Francisco. And I guess there's another one at Skywalker Ranch, which we have not been to. (laughs) So no. Yeah, it's. I think it's worth a little trip. Like the little park is so cute, and then the Indiana Jones statue is great, and they even have a plaque on it that Star Wars, you know, written here in 1973, which is 
cool, right? Mm-hmm. And they said the same thing about Indiana Jones, even though, yeah. Charlotte <laughs> <laughs> ranted about this for like hours. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I need to air my grievances about this, but I don't know if that's one hundred percent correct. But I'm sure there's a historian who's an Indiana Jones historian who can correct me it's about Indiana Lucas Jones said. being. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's fine. But. <laughs> Yeah, this park isn't that old, actually, too. And they started, uh, like, movements towards the park. Like, they started these conversations with George Lucas in 2012, so just a couple months before the Disney sale, which, Mm -hmm. again, context is king, and I just think it's interesting that George was kind of building, in the process of building this park. I think he was first approached about it in, like, June 2012, so very soon. And then it opened, like, the next year, like, in summer Mm -hmm. of 2013, so. yeah. It was very quick, actually. And anyway, I there's a lot of other interesting things about this little slice of San Anselmo that George Lucas is involved in. So we'll probably – they'll either be something up on our website or we'll do like a little bonus episode or something about it. So if you're or interested – Yeah, or both. Yeah. That'll be coming whenever I finish my research on it. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'm really glad that we stopped by Phil Shostak and Joel Aaron actually – like tweeted us and we're like you should definitely go if you can and it really was like right off the highway for us it wasn't a big deal to when we were coming back from napa so i'm really happy that we we did it and it next time any of you go to san francisco and want to do like a little (laughs) drive-by tour of all these places i i highly recommend it honestly it was interesting yeah it was really fun so that's kind of the big recap of our our Star Wars recap, anyway, of our <laughs> California adventure. It was so much fun. We had a great time. The fact that we got to mix in like quite a bit of Star Wars <laughs> into yeah. our Napa trip was really fun. And uh, yeah, I don't know when I'm going to see you again, so that's a bummer. Um, mm. But we had a really It'll fun probably trip. Be soon. I mean, yeah. yeah, it'll probably be soon. We usually see each other at the holidays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, this episode on Visions, I'm really excited that we're getting to it. And this will be our two out of three episodes about Visions. We're definitely going to do an episode on the novel Ronin. I'm super pumped about that. Caitlin and I are both reading it now. And we had to talk about it. So we're going to. And then that'll probably conclude our like three episodes devoted to visions but who knows about what the future may hold about visions content and things we're going to want to talk about so should we get going caitlin yeah i think so this has been a long time coming all right yes it really has okay so in part one we're going to be talking about the visuals of visions in part two we're going to be talking about the generational stories and in part three we're going to be talking about a phrase that we've come to love called breath of play And we'll talk more about what we mean by that when we get to part three. So without further ado, let's get started. Okay, welcome to part one, where we're talking all about the visuals of Star Wars Visions. And I think it'll probably be worth it to talk a little bit about how we divided out this episode, because Mm -hmm. we talked about this for a while. And, you know, we thought about just kind of going through each episode individually, almost like we did in our reaction episode. And I think there's a lot of merit to going through the episodes like that, especially because, you know, in our interview with the producers, we asked specifically about the order that they were presented in on Disney Plus. And that order is very intentional. So I think there is something very interesting about going through them kind of one by one, how they're presented on Disney Plus. But we decided that we wanted to try something a little bit different since we kind of already did that in our reaction episode. And 
kind of split them up with some larger themes or some of the things that kind of stood out the most to us when we were going through Star Wars Visions. And I think, of course, the visuals is a huge component of Star Wars Visions and part of what made it so exciting to watch. So we're going to kind of dive into some of the like specific animation styles, what we thought they meant, how they helped the story, how they helped tell the story that was being told in the specific episode. And also something that we really love talking about is like the use of color throughout a lot of these episodes. So we're not going to go through every single episode in every single section. We're going to kind of jump around, and I'm sure through the discussion, you'll kind of see which episodes were our favorites by those we kind of <laughs> yeah. keep going back to or spend more time on. We're not really looking to like spend the same amount of time on every episode, and I don't mean that to say that like they're not all great or have something great to say, but I'm sure that that's just kind of how our conversation is going to naturally evolve. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of... I guess our disclaimer, but also just kind of how we set up this episode. Yeah. So why don't we start with the use of color? Because for me, I feel like what really like there are some episodes in Star Wars Visions that are shorts. I'm not sure what kind of terminology to use, so I think I'm gonna kind of go back and forth between episode and short. There's some that really stand out to me with the use of color, and then some don't, but each have such a unique style, like Caitlin was mentioning. And I guess where I wanted to start with the use of color was Akakiri. And to me, I know in our reaction, Akakiri, I can't remember where it landed. It was closer to the top, but not the very top. And to me, I keep returning to this short so much. I think the music is amazing. I really love this like intentional like reversion of the Anakin story that's going on in Akakiri. And I just feel like did I mention the music? Oh my God, the music <laughs> and, <laughs> and the the visuals. So like, let's talk about the fact that Akakiri means red haze, right? It means red haze, red mist. And that's that mist that surrounds him. And I think it there's a sense of like that being literal within this short, but also it is pretty, I would say metaphorical in the fact that there's this darkness of destiny that follows our main character around so much. And something that really just stood out to me and one thing I wanted to talk through with Caitlin was the fact that red is a color that is so present in Star Wars. And I think that it's we're, we're so familiar with it because we talked about it so much with, with The Last Jedi when that was like the beginning of our podcast when we were really diving deep into The Last Jedi. So it's really hard for me to sep- separate like the color red and like that darkness or that um, brightness too. There's also, there's like a darkness, there's a violence, there's a passion in red, right? And it's it's hard for me to separate that from my thoughts about The Last Jedi. And I was just wondering, like, what did you think about the use of red in Akakiri and the concept of the red haze? And how does it relate to other uses of red that we've seen in Star Wars? I think it's kind of funny that we're starting with Akakiri considering that is the last episode and considering what I was just talking about before. But Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like you, Akakiri is something that I kind of keep thinking about. And it's such this kind of like, I don't know, bucket list story to see in Star Wars. I mean, we already have seen it, right? Like this is kind of Anakin's story in a lot of ways. But I think the use of red in Akakiri, it really does kind of draw you immediately back to The Last Jedi, like you already mentioned, Charlotte, and then Revenge of the Sith. Like, I think it's interesting because like in both Revenge of the Sith and The Last Jedi, the use of the color red, it's kind of marking these really big changes for our characters. For Anakin, it's falling, like finally falling to the dark side. 
for Ray and Kylo, it's like this representation that something has kind of shifted completely and can kind of never go back to how it was before. Um, you know, in Snow in Snoke's boudoir. <laughs> Feels so, like it's been a while since I've referenced Snoke's boudoir. <laughs> we should like, reference it more. It's we too should. good. <laughs> it's like the tearing down of the curtain, right? It's all yes, on fire. The fire. Or, yeah, yeah, around them and everything. And in Akikiri, it really does kind of it it feels almost more in some ways more metaphorical, like you were saying, more symbolic than maybe even perhaps Revenge of the Sith and uh, The Last Jedi. I think because Akakiri, like it's so, like the story is so concentrated into this very short time frame, right? That it's kind of making the most with the least amount of time, the least amount of, of time for the story. And it's really focusing on kind of this larger than life one thing this color red to really illustrate what's going on with our main character and it kind of it does this really well in conjunction with the music i think perhaps the best out of any of the shorts or the most um i don't want to say intentional because i know that like all sound and music is intentional in these shorts and in star wars in general but there's just this way that the color, the use of the color red and the music kind of building to this crescendo and the red expanding across the screen and like our main character's like ultimate choice in the whole thing. Like they all reach this crescendo at the same time. And I think that it was so dramatic and it, I think it was probably the most dramatic moment, one of the most dramatic moments out of the entire uh, series of shorts. And I was literally on the edge of my seat the whole time. And I think it was some of the most effective use of color that we've seen in a long time from Star Wars, honestly. Yeah. To me, I think that the – okay, so to the music, I think it's both the music and the sound, right? So the, yeah. the short begins with these bird-like creatures against a red sky, and immediately you hear – their sound and they're they're like violent about the bird like creatures right and you hear that same bird sound at the very end when it fades to black and when you know the the main character decides to you know turn to the dark side essentially and walk away into the darkness and i i think it's there's this really interesting mirroring of destiny and the fact that we begin with like this violence like sort of disruptive sound and end with this disruptive sound too. And I know I'm talking about sound a lot when it comes to it, but I do think that it's interesting because we start with this, like we, we start between red and blue in the color scheme of the short and we end in complete red and then it obviously fades to black. But I feel like the red fully consumes him, that red mist, that Akakiri, right? Uh, it fully takes over him at the very end. I think that you made a good point that I just found so – fascinating when I would watch when I watch this over and over and over again I just can't get over the fact that it is like an extension or a redo of Anakin's story like what would have happened if Palpatine actually had the power to save Padme or if Padme had died and then Anakin was able to use that power and he just continued to be on the dark side and like left her I I don't know I just think it's because you have a princess you know and Padme it could be, you know, she's royalty. So there's that too. And there's so many things and visions. And I talked about this in our reaction, but my imagination goes wild with these kind of sort of like fan fiction-y AU type ideas that I just can never get over. And I think that by effectively using like the visual language of things that we're so familiar with, like the color red in Star Wars and the idea of violence and the idea of fate too, because we talk about the red string of fate, even with the uh, the Last Jedi and everything, um, 
we, we understand that the concept of destiny, the concept of fate, violence, passion, and how that can fully consume you. And it does in this short. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also worth noting that this um, short is one of the only ones or one of the few that was directed by a woman. Her name is Choi Eun-young, and she is a Korean expat to Japan. And if you watch the behind the scenes features, they had some interviews with her. And I just think she's super cool. She just really seemed like she had her life together. But some of the <laughs> um, some of the creators behind uh, this short in particular, just w- I thought worth mentioning. Uh, one of the things they mentioned about the use of the color red, you know, they talked about it, of course, like getting more red by the end of the short. And they said the red haze represents not being able to see good and bad clearly when you have something clouding your judgment, which is, of course, kind of what we've been talking about with this episode and I don't know I just thought it was it was cool to kind of bring in what they said too and of course we love seeing women creators in Star Wars and I don't know this one seemed so cool because it was in a lot of ways the one of the more dramatic ones and I loved having it being written by a woman being directed by a woman I think the studio was Science Saru and I believe that this director Choi Young she uh, I think founded this animation uh, studio yeah. too, which I think is awesome also. So yeah. And I believe that this studio too is behind the short or the movie Ride Your Wave, which I watched a couple months ago and was such a cute, fun anime movie. So I think it's on HBO Max, but yeah. Cool. Okay. So I think that something that Akakiri did well was sort of play into our perception of how red is understood in Star Wars. Like, I think something that we just haven't said outright is that red equals evil in Star Wars, right? And blue and green equal good and things like that. And another short that really played with our perceptions of the way that we understand colors in Star Wars and that sort of innate, like what we core understand from like the rules in the box of Star Wars was the ninth Jedi. And I feel like the ninth Jedi is probably the one that is being talked about the most on the internet because I think the creator is like, there's more story to tell and we want to do it. And he's very much advocating for that. And I am very much here for it. I really hope that we get an expanded situation with any of these shorts, to be honest, or just a season two, a follow-up, something. Really want that. But regardless, the idea, the perception of what we know so well in Star Wars that is being played with in the Ninth Jedi is one of the reasons why I find it so effective because that surprise that happens later when <laughs> it's sort of flipped about who is evil and who is there for the right reasons and things like that, this lightsaber crystal reveal, I don't know. It was so brilliant. It was brilliantly done and something that I think we should have seen before. It was one of those moments yeah. where it was like, how is this not done before? Oh my gosh. And so much of that re- reminded me of our lightsaber color theory episode. That episode just keeps coming around and I honestly, surprising. <laughs> is it surprising? Because it's like colors at the core of every single Star Wars I know, it just, thing I'm, that we see. I remember when we did it kind of feeling like it was a little bit random and... <laughs> But I feel like we... It's one of our most popular episodes, for sure. Not, not really. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. It's, like, not, it's like, not. by downloads, but people do bring it up a lot, I feel like. It's, like, I think when you're talking about, like, kind of niche Sky Talkers episodes, it's, like, or very, like, on-brand Sky Talkers episodes, it's Hands Are a Language and then, like, this one. But Hands Are a Language definitely has more legs, no pun intended, than, like, lightsaber color theory. <laughs> yeah. But... Yeah, the lightsaber color theory was really fun. And I was like, oh, my God, 
if imagine that episode if we had had ninth jedi to exist in the time frame when we did that episode yeah i think this was kind of the other super like knocked me off my off my seat uh reveal of all of those you know not actually jedi standing around and their lightsabers going up and i think you're right charlotte like it is so how have we not seen this before in star wars to have a lightsaber that reflects your intentions and what i thought was so great in this was that we saw one we saw kara who's morality, her path uh, in life, her intentions undecided. And I loved that it wasn't like her lightsaber wasn't one color or another. It was she's still so young. She's still figuring it out. And that possibility that she could go either way, right, I think is so intriguing and compelling. And I think why so many people would love to see more of her story. And the other thing that was really great was seeing one of our I guess one of the other lightsaber users that like, I should I call them Jedi? Should I call them Sith? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, his lightsaber go back and forth. Like he mentions at the end, I can't remember exactly what he said, but something along the lines of like, I, I got lost in the dark side for a moment or something like that. And to see mm-hmm. like his, like the haze kind of lift, right? If we're bringing it back to Akakiri, like that red haze kind of lift from him. Um, and I think that's, really important too in kind of our larger conversation about personal choice in Star Wars and that something like redemption is always on the table and you can always choose another path and it can even be like in a split second and I think that it was so it fits so well with Star Wars despite being something we've never actually seen before Um, in it I don't know it worked so well and, and the use of color becomes so important in this episode and it feels so familiar and it really made me think about like what would one some of our Raylo fights have been like if their lightsabers oh were God. changing color with how they were perceiving each other themselves their roles in the galaxy like imagine like so imagine the Death Star on top of the Death Star like that battle with their lightsabers uh, kind of going back and forth especially oh because like Ray's in kind of a much more aggressive <laughs> position at that point in the story I just it Wow. And even like bringing it back to Mustafar, like with Anakin and Obi-Wan, like when Anna, like if you could have seen for a moment, like Anakin's kind of change a little bit when Obi-Wan is talking to him, like in some ways it would have made it even more dramatic and tragic to see like a moment of that blue come back and then it just be trampled down by that red lightsaber um, or the the red from the crystal coming through with with Anakin's like final choice it's so that's such a cool concept and the the thing is is that I really like to have this what if concept of like oh my god wouldn't it be so cool to see that but at the other side I do think it's a little obvious like yeah if if that was happening in the movie I don't think I would say no to that but there is something about the subtlety of will they won't they of will they turn back to the good will they how do we know they're good what are their intentions and like if you just have the signifiers a little obvious i do think you're totally right though where that would have been so freaking cool (laughs) in the rise of skywalker on the sunken death star oh my god one thing i wanted to touch on before we move on because like it's just on the tip of my tongue you know recently we did an episode about the like sort of manifestation of the dark side and how we kind of perceive that and how that has changed a lot within 
the years, especially like even within writing Revenge of the Sith. And that was sort of the focus of the episode. You can go back if you haven't listened to it. But I do think it's worth mentioning and sort of hammering home that the concept of a haze or a mist lifting is really an interesting manifestation of the dark side. Something like coming over you. You know, we talked a lot about like the concept of a virus, like being under the influence almost of the dark side. And here to have something uh, that is so visual, like a mist or a haze or something that is brought into it, and then also having this sort of visualization of the lightsabers in the Ninth Jedi. So we have Akakiri and the Ninth Jedi kind of playing off of each other in this way. And for me, I just think it's another really cool exploration of how do you have these like signifiers of what the dark side is and to have these different creators play into it and sort of give their own sort of perception about how one loses themselves into their ego or something. I mean, that comes up in every single episode of Star Wars Visions. It is manifesting in a different way, but I love how we can explore these different ways that it comes up. Yeah, kind of seeing everyone's perception of the dark side, um, especially Mm -hmm. with Akakiri and that haze. And we talked about the virus. I think we landed a lot on like the use of chains Mm-hmm. with the dark side and the haze is just another iteration another way to talk about it and um, it's cool because like if we're comparing like the ninth jedi and akakiri and in a lot of ways like how they portray the dark side like akakiri is kind of it is that inner uh metaphor like the characters mm-hmm. aren't seeing the red surrounding <laughs> them and well, the short you don't know that but yeah i mean I don't. I guess that's how I interpreted <laughs> it. Like that's that's for us, the viewer. Whereas mm-hmm. the like, you're right in some ways that like if if the way that lightsabers are portrayed in the Ninth Jedi was kind of part of the course, it would be a little obvious. And how would you conceal your intentions? You can't. Well, okay, how do you use that in a story effectively, right? But it's like the it, yeah, it is like that. What if of okay? Well, what if what if we could look at some of these scenes and see the moment when we think the lightsaber would have changed colors. It's fun to play around with and it's great to see it kind of created into an actual story component in something like Star Wars Visions where it can just kind of be played out to the fullest in kind of this really experimental fun way. So the twins was also kind of this great splash of color and animation. It felt, you know, I I don't have a ton of experience with anime. I've only watched a couple anime films, and I, have I watched any actual anime shows? Yeah, Maybe of like course one you have. Or, Sailor yeah. Moon. Yeah, yeah, you yeah have. that's true. <laughs> Um, (laughs) So, But all that being said, I I don't have a ton of experience with it. But this one, the twins felt the most the most anime to me in the sense that the style of the animation style looked very similar to the other examples of anime I've watched. And the creators behind it kind of described it as this remix of Star Wars, which I thought was kind of a fun, funky way to talk about it. And I think that the animation style of it was so like really lent itself to the action of that episode because while it has a very interesting premise of like these dark side twins and what you know their ultimate motives are with each other and the relationship to each other or rather the brother's relationship to the sister the action of it really kind of was the standout I think for that episode and the colors and the animation style of it were so what's the word uh energetic and it you could feel the motion and the action 
from that episode. I felt like this whole art style around the twins was sort of punk rock in a way and it's so yeah. brightly colored as well like at the same t- at the same time. And I was wondering, okay, so James Waugh says that it's part of remix culture, right? How do you interpret what he means by remix culture in the way that the of the visuals? Because for me, I think he is talking about taking things that we already know, which is like kind of the entire visions thing. But for some reason that just works better in, or like that descriptor works better in the twins. And I'm trying to figure out why I feel like there's something really interesting about the visuals of this episode and the fact that it's like so familiar. And like, we look at these two characters and we're like, Oh wow. It's like kind of like Luke and Leia. Like what if, you know, all this kind of thing. And then not only that, but the, the, the girl twin, has like a Darth Vader-esque suit, but it's different and it's like way more intense. And not only that, but the suit (laughs) is part of the story. And then we have a character that looks like he could be Luke and how we have an astromech that sounds like R2-D2, but it isn't R2-D2 and everything is over the top. It's so, it's it's like a feast for the eyes in this way of like taking things that we know. It's like I'm watching something that's like meant to be in like 3D almost And I think that it really plays into the -the over-the-top nature of the story overall. And the balance of that really works for me in this episode. Yeah, I think the remix culture of the twins, I think it's felt a lot in this episode in particular. Because, you know, this is something they talk about with Star Wars and its visual language are the silhouettes of characters and of spaces and ships and droids and all that stuff and I think that this episode has so many like quote-unquote silhouettes (laughs) that we're very familiar with where it's something you know like the visual language of Luke of this kid with blonde hair of this the star destroyers of the droids of the Vader suit of the clones the stormtroopers that are accompanying them everywhere like these are they're all kind of compressed into this one setting, more or less, of the Star Destroyer, which is kind of so very much Star Wars, like the original Star Wars in 1977. And so I think that's part of what makes it feel in some way, like we're going to talk a little bit about Tatooine Rhapsody too. And Tatooine Rhapsody is the only one that uses characters we've seen before, obviously with like Boba Fett and Jabba and everything like that. But in some ways, the twins feels... I don't want to say more familiar. I'm not really sure how to describe it, but it feels like something we've seen before in Star Wars. I think because there is this abundance of these like types of ships and characters and droids and like background characters that we've seen before that they all kind of come together and this story like the twins itself is so incredibly Star Wars with Luke and Leia and to just kind of flip it upside down for a moment and then play with these really bold colors like there's not a ton of like intricate detail on these things either like you look at some of the like designs for the stormtroopers and stuff and it's not like they're not like filled in, you know what I mean? In the sense that like every single detail of their costume is drawn in or every single detail of the Star Destroyers are drawn in because they don't have to do that because we know what we're looking at and because that's part of the the stylistic design of this short too. So I, for me, that's kind of, 
I think that's how I can articulate why the twins feels different and in some ways fits in more to the Star Wars universe than something like Tatooine Rhapsody, which has characters like Boba and Jabba that we've seen before. Yeah, I think that Tatooine Rhapsody's art style and the way that the characters are really cartoony as well. Like maybe I shouldn't be using the word cartoony and like Keelan mentioned, Keelan and I are not super well versed in anime and the history of anime and things like that. I mean, we're, we're, we're we love, we like it, you know, <laughs> like we're, we're, we're into it. So, um, but I don't know if like saying cartoony is the right terminology, but it does feel like there's a childlike wonder to Tatooine Rhapsody and the character, specifically the main character there. That's who I'm thinking about. And how the the style is like it's so whimsical and it's like also from like both of those are familiar like you mentioned but I don't think there's whimsy in the twins right no (laughs) it's there's there's energy there's drama in in the twins and that is expressed in the art style too but with in Tatooine Rhapsody it's fun it's fresh it's familiar it's whimsical it's I don't know, it's kind of grungy too in this like fun way. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I I I love them both. Tatooine Rhapsody feels like it was from the 90s. Yeah, and yeah. And I, they were intentionally playing into that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the best way to talk about Tatooine Rhapsody's like overall feel. It like it feels like a grunge band in the 90s, like getting ready to go see the Phantom Menace themselves. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But then there is this like beautiful whimsy to it and it's just this rock band and you get to see Jabba and Boba like tapping in time to the music and they get their big moment on the crowd with the crowd and the pod racing and it's it's so fun and just out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. I I really I was surprised how much I really liked that one if I'm being completely honest. Like I I loved it. I loved every single one, but that one really was amazing to me. It was just so fun and I could fully buy into everything and it made me just smile, which is really nice. Yeah. I think there's something so great in like – I remember the first time watching through all of these because I did it in one big setting and – just the jumps from the duel to Tatooine Rhapsody was just so intense. <laughs> and I kind of love that it was like these two were they did that on purpose. Other. Yeah. You just yeah. you really going up and down, up and down as far as like the specific kinds of emotions each story is pulling out of you. And their animation style is of course a huge piece of that. And Tatooine Rhapsody was just, it was like, let me give you the best AU ever from The Phantom Menace. And it's something you would have seen in the 90s too. (laughs) Yeah. The thing about, we keep saying whimsy, but I think the number one whimsical episode of Star Wars Visions was T-O-B-1 or Toby. Again, (sighs) I'm not sure how to say this. Um, Actually, I've heard a couple people, uh, David Collins on Blast Points the other day said, Toby won. So I'm just saying yeah. you worked on the sound. <laughs> so, so I think there is like really something there about if we can compare and contrast the animation style for, for Tatooine Rhapsody and Toby, I think that would be really interesting because they both evoke this sense of fun, the sense of whimsy, um, and also sort of like this deep tragedy too, that is like kind of hinging on each of them. I think 
Toby is a, is more sad to me than than Tatooine Rhapsody. But I think what's so interesting about this conversation is what's great about Visions is that none of them – they all are so different. And like you said, it's even jarring going from one to the next. But they all feel unique and very like localized to Star Wars, right? I yeah. think that even – and they're so different. They're so different, but it really works because – and you wrote this in the notes. Toby is dare to be cute, and that's George Lucas's whole thing, right? He was about that with the Ewoks in Return of the Jedi, and dare to be cute has come back so much. And you know what? Dare to be cute. That one <laughs> – Toby is just the best. <laughs> I loved that one so much. To- Toby, yeah, Toby really surprised me. I had no idea what I was getting myself into with Toby. Toby one, T-O-B one. Um, but I think if we're comparing the two, because they they kind of are the most childlike, I would say, out of out of the the season. Like I would, it's like it's weird because for Tattoo and Rhapsody, I would say that's like. It has kind of that mentality, I think because of Jay, the character of like 14, 15 years old, whereas then Toby feels skewed younger with Toby himself feels younger. And um, in the behind the scenes features, each of the directors kind of talked about these um, these themes, I guess, kind of these taglines that I think kind of aids in our discussion of comparing these two specifically. And for Tatooine Rhapsody, uh, they described it as a lust for life in this episode, which I think, one, fits really well because that other hut was going to be executed. <laughs> and he was like, nothing else matters as long as I play this one last gig. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they were like, you can play one last gig before we execute you. <laughs> it's just um, so funny. But then uh, the way that they talk about Toby is they talk about it as let's play Jedi. And I think that we see that theme expressed so well in Toby um, from this dare to be cute and this this the director describing it as let's play Jedi um, really does set the tone and is reflected in the entire art style. Like the art style itself is like a chalk drawing. And the director even talks about like how they drew on the walls, like all these things about being a Jedi and like Jedi fights and lightsabers and stuff like that. And he was like, kids are never allowed to draw on the walls, but there's this space where Toby does that because he's this kid and this, this imagination that he has, this great wish is to be a Jedi. And I think that, I just I loved Toby so much for that feel and hearing the director talk about it as let's play Jedi when he said that it was like everything clicked into place for me in that episode I was like oh okay I I see the intention there and I see it fully expressed in this episode like you know we've got kind of that chalk texture to the animation style overall it's like the it's bubbly we've got a lot of round soft shapes it it just it works so well and to see Toby at the end kind of you know really step into his his life as a Jedi now and kind of defeat this first big challenge that he has. It's like the big boss at the end of the game. And like any kid, they're going to win the battle right away. You know what I mean? And Toby does. And he then he continues on with his mission that he learned from his master. And he's 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 a real boy. He's a real Jedi. And it's just it's so 
I just have such a love for Toby. I think it's such a sweet, cute episode. And, you know, Toby is from the same studio that did Akakiri and those cannot be more night and day. <laughs> and that's, that's what I love about it too. Right? I love that, that dichotomy between mm-hmm. these two. And I think that, yeah, the, the concept of, you know, let's play Jedi, anyone can be a Jedi, I think is continuously explored in basically every single one of these as well. Um, except for maybe Akakiri. They like nailed it right? <laughs> with, with their with the story they were telling. But I think that this one to me feels the most, um, I don't know. It's like I want to live in that space. It's so interesting. And they, yeah. they have the style, the animation style. And the, just like actually if you put both Toby Wan and Akakiri next to each other, honestly, I don't think I would know that they were the same studio. And that really shows how – incredible the sort of art artistry behind this is that that there's not like one sense of style but like this this sense of exploration of different types of styles in order to get the story across right like yeah the fact that you're telling a Pinocchio story okay so like let's lean hard into what is Pinocchio what is a story like Pinocchio with round lines and bright colors look like within Star Wars? And how can we play at that? What are the like Geppetto creations that we can have that accompany Toby-Wan? And they're what they what are they? They're little tiny little droids that almost look like wooden block figures, but they're not. They're they're little robots that are just the cutest ever. And yeah, I just think that this this sort of expression between the two is really, really fascinating and just really like so well done. And honestly, I don't think this one is getting enough attention, if I'm being honest, I, I because I think people are like, I think they dismiss it as, oh, it's just like a cute little kid story. But I think it's way more than that. I think it is like the essence of what Star Wars is. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is too. It, it I mean, the fact that the goal of the Jedi, of the Master, and of Toby is to bring life to the planet. There's just something so sweet about that and hopeful and endearing. And Toby gets to be the Jedi. He has his lightsaber fight. He gets the W, the win. But then he goes on to bring life to other planets when he himself is, as a droid, technically not alive. And that all in one story, I think is just is great. And honestly, like a lot of our conversations about Star Wars and droid rights, which I know is a big, like big for you and what it means to be a Jedi and nature versus like industry. We talk about those a lot in Star Wars and they all kind of intersect in this episode and even the idea of like when you're introduced to Star Wars as a child, that nostalgia that you have for it, the concept of like toys being such a big part of Star Wars, you know, th- that's what Toby's doing. He's playing Jedi and he's got like his own <laughs> way of pretending to have a lightsaber and all this stuff. Like it just, it all comes together and it's all so cutely packaged <laughs> in this short. It really is. And that concept of in like nature versus industry, I think is you know, an undercurrent of Star Wars constantly. We've talked, like you've mentioned, we've talked about it a lot on the show, but I think it really comes up also if we could shift gears a little bit to talk about La Pinocho, because there's something really beautiful about the hand-drawn animation and the hand-drawn backgrounds that are in La Pinocho that really illustrate the like imperial presence on that planet. And I think this one, again, I am, Caitlin and I are not anime experts and I think that for us like for for me I think that we're both really familiar with Miyazaki 
and Studio Ghibli. And I think that the backgrounds on this were so similar to me about like movies that I'm so familiar with, like Spirited Away or Princess Mononoke or something like that, that really do (laughs) illustrate the concept of industry and like environmentalism on on the surface, right? And I think that that is a, the background, if not the main story of Lapanocho that sort of divides the family. And I, I think that having that sort of um, play into the background of like l- literally play into the background of these like beautiful hand-drawn pieces and in the ba- it's just really reinforces the story, which is I think the thesis of this is that the 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 way that the styles of every single short they all feel so unique and so different but they all each reinforce the story so well um i can't even think of one that doesn't right and the the thing that was really cool with the lop and ocho backgrounds being hand drawn um the creator said that hand drawn animation makes you feel a warm connection and i wondered what you thought about that caitlin like is that totally reinforced in the, in the story of lop and ocho yeah i think absolutely lop and ocho is always kind of vying for number one for me <laughs> in my in my own like personal favorites <laughs> and visions. And I think that the animation of it is a huge part of that. Like you were saying, like the backgrounds, there's there's something so ornate about the animation in Lapin Ocho, particularly with these backgrounds and these settings that they're going through. It's so detailed. I, I think ornate is honestly the best way to describe it, especially when we're kind of putting it in this lineup. They are the most detailed. There seems there's like it really does feel like a painting come to life in ways that some of the other shorts it's not that they don't feel like that but they're different styles they're telling a different story you guys know um but I think that with Lop and Ocho having this kind of fully realized city in the sense that like I understand what's happening in this city on this planet when we're talking about something like the village bride it's it's kind of like as you're going through the story, you're getting more clues. You're kind of figuring out the story of that place in the Village Bride as you go through the short. But with Lop and Ocho, you kind of just need a few of these establishing shots to understand what's happening and to understand mm-hmm. further this conflict between father and daughter. And then you have Lop in the middle of it between them because – even though she's not from that planet, it's become her home. And more than that, this has become her family. And I think that Lop and Ocho, it kind of plays at so much of the family dynamics that we see throughout all of Star Wars of, yes, we have two people on opposite sides of a war, of a choice, of a conflict. And oftentimes the their choices have larger than life ramifications for the different organizations or planets that they represent. But the heart of it is their relationship to each other. And that's ultimately what is fueling them. And I think we see that so beautifully portrayed in Lop and Ocho. And the fact that the backgrounds, the animation style kind of catch you up visually with what you need to know allows the story to really lean into the emotional dynamic between these characters and seeing Lava and Ocho's father like go over go after Ocho and have this like battle with her but not wanting to fight her it's just it's so beautiful and sad in kind of the way that Star Wars is tragedy <laughs> and I just I love this 
I love this short so much. I thought it was super emotional and I thought it was beautiful. I did too. I really did too. Yeah. I think that we should probably wrap up this section because we have a lot more left to say and we're already like an hour into this podcast, but I, I don't think we can leave the conversation about visuals without talking about the duel. And so the duel is the first one and we we're, we spent a lot of time talking about color and like the use of color and how it's so gorgeous on in the twins. It is so energetic and, you know, in Akakiri, the red haze. Well, the duel is something that mimics the samurai films of Akira Kurosawa and it just sort of play the animation style of this one is just so good. It is it's so striking. interesting and so unique. And I feel like, yeah, it is so striking. And I think that the entire thing is almost black and white until we see that red lightsaber. So here we go again with the color red, right? <laughs> and it's it's just so cool to me that we have this sort of like selective color that happens within Star Wars that really lets us know you know, intentions and, you know, sides and things like that. Um, what do you think of the visuals of of the duel, Caitlin? I think the duel, like you, like we said, it it's so striking. It's kind of, again, like if we're comparing to, it's the exact opposite of Toby. Like Toby yeah. is very, right, like round and soft and Ronan is very jagged mm-hmm. and it has like a lot of like brush strokes, <laughs> if I can uh, describe it that way. Like it, there's always kind of movement happening with mm-hmm. with like the lines in in the duel, and I think that it it feels it feels almost like if I can use like a musical metaphor, like it, the duel almost feels like kind of staccato in like the way that the characters move. Like there is this fluidity to them, but there's also this sharpness to that animation style and I think that's uh, you they really lean into that by using predominantly black and white you know 90 99 percent black and white what I think is interesting is that red is not the only color in the duel mm-hmm. we see like the blue lights on mm-hmm. certain ships on the droid on like basically like electronics <laughs> and like buttons they have this blue and I think there are some lights too that are kind of throughout the town that have that blue light that come from it and I remember I still haven't quite figured out like why I think they made the choice to include that those pops of blue I wouldn't even call them pops of blue they're like dots of blue like they're really small um they never kind of overtake a scene but because the rest of the short is devoid of color you of course really notice them and it's like I understand I I get the the symbol, the symbolism, the kind of shock value of red being that only color. But I was wondering what you thought about the other use of this, like very kind of subtle blue, I guess. To me, I think that when we think about this animation style, I feel like it it produces an air of sophistication, which I think is another reason why they started with this, to be honest, because I think it is so unique. I think it is so special. It really does harken back to the samurai mu- movies that George Lucas was so inspired by. And I feel like the subtle use of color streaming in is part of that sophistication about like moving forward, but also kind of looking back, right? So looking back at those movies that like Yojimbo and and movies that really inspired this specific short in the duel. Yeah. But also it's not just about like, oh, we're just seeing red because that color is the color of evil or we're seeing blue because that color is the color of uh, – of, of, 
you know, goodness. Not, it's not that at all. To me, I think it is he, – here's how we play with this animation style. We could have this in an entirely black and white if we wanted to and that would be fine. But we're not because we're still like in present day and this is – we're moving everything forward. Yeah. I think I did have one idea while you were talking about the use of blue and kind of the color of the lightsabers themselves. Because you're right, like obviously this uh, short is a callback to the like films like Yojimbo with his animation style, with the story that's being told itself. It's very much a direct line back to a lot of the source material and inspiration for George Lucas, right? And I, it kind of makes me wonder because the lightsaber itself being red, the kind of blinking lights that we see a lot, these are the things that are not of like Yojimbo time <laughs> um, in the sense that like the lights kind of draw your attention to like these electronics, to these droids, to this technology that is very Star Wars, like the droids themselves, the lights on the ships that come down, the lights throughout the village and the lightsaber itself is of course inspired by swords and stuff like that right but a lightsaber is is star wars kind of one of the most symbolic things that has come from star wars and so i almost kind of wonder if it was an opportunity to also in conjunction with what you were saying charlotte but also to highlight the ways that this is different from what came before too i don't know i'm still not really sure but there was something i found myself thinking about while you were talking too yeah totally all right. So are we ready to move on to part two generational stories? Yes. No matter how powerful you become, no, it will not last forever. Okay. So welcome to part two where we're talking about generational stories. And I feel like the topic of family and generations and passing it down has become... A, a very, I don't know, common topic to talk about Star Wars when we talk about themes and things like that. But I feel like we couldn't really pass over visions without coming back to this point because it was referenced so much in the behind the scenes. And I think that each of these stories has something different to say about passing on, you know, a myth or a story or just keeping your family together and what a family means and things like that. And that's what really – it's very exciting to me to have a whole slew of shorts that have something different to say about generations. And I think that it's – like even just like as a topic, I feel like that generational stories with Star Wars is one of the reasons why we keep coming back to Star Wars. And whenever anyone talks about passing Star Wars down to their kids or – you know, watching Star Wars with their their parents or something like that, or their first time watching Star Wars. It is like my love language. I can never get enough of it. So I feel like what's really cool is that when people are making Star Wars now, that's what they love about Star Wars too, is this idea of passing it down. So in each of these shorts, I think that it's it's emphasized in a different way. And it's really cool. Yeah, there's kind of all these different definitions of family, of friendship, of belonging that we're kind of always talking about in Star Wars and on the show. And they're like, yeah, here's a sample platter of it all. <laughs> like, and here are all our favorite parts of it too. And let's kind of shake it up in this new way and in these new settings with new characters. And so it does feel like bread and butter. It feels 
that's like in the in the prologue, right? We talked about like how Star Wars Visions does have this essence of the Star Wars feeling, and this section, generational stories, is part of that essence. I think, and we see so many different examples of it. Um, so I think we should start with the Village Bride because we haven't talked about the Village Bride yet, really, uh, in this episode, and this one is so good. <laughs> I, I, it's actually shocking that we haven't talked about the Village Bride. Um, yeah, we, we mentioned this. it briefly before, it's but it's my favorite one. And I think the center of the village bride is a generational story. Number one, we have the wedded pairs of Haru and Asu, you know, going through this ritual in order to bring good fortune to people who come later, right? Like they are sacrificing themselves in order for fortune to continue on their planet, in order for good things to happen. So there we already have like this sacrificial nature, something that we're very familiar with when we talk about Star Wars stories. But something I just think is really interesting is that you have these two sort of generations back to back. So you have this sort of repeating, this sort of natural world that like this respect for the natural world and sort of this ebb and flow of the way things go with the characters who are native to the planet. And then you have the master and the apprentice in the master and then her name is F, right? And later, you don't really know their relationship at all. You're not really privy to it at all. And that's what makes it so interesting to me and what I love about this episode so much is that the imagination just goes and goes and goes with this one. Because I think that the the master character is pretty similar to me to Luke Skywalker. I feel like he even kind of looks like Luke in his older age and he's that kind-hearted sort of wanting to show you the way in this like begrudging way or like has this uh, you know back pocket agenda in with with F right and then with F you don't really know what her deal is and she's sort of rejecting i guess her past as a jedi and that's why the master is there to kind of show her her worth and what she should do and what she knows she should do and this concept of the master and apprentice, if that's how we can define their relationship, I think is pushing through that that is like who she is, you know, who she's going to pass down to and who she should inspire next in the generations. And so later when she sort of pulls off this deal with the help of the master as well, of course, um, to get rid of the occupancy on the planet, I think that it really it's it's this sort of merging of what we know Star Wars to be so well with these two generational stories. And for me, I like I cannot stop thinking about like this alternate reality where like F is like Ray and Kylo's daughter or something. And <laughs> I like I just like I can't I can't not go there. And I just think she's so cool. I love her looks, like her the the heels. It's just amazing. The heels. And the the heels. It's so good. <laughs> and and just sort of the the ending, I think, is re- like the action is amazing. I love that helmet that like flies through and ruins this like quasi taken over, not Millennium Falcon, but like definitely a Carillion ship, right? <laughs> and I, I just – I think this like flip of it all is so good and it makes my mind wander like crazy because – like like we've been saying, this is the essence of everything that we know with Star Wars, like trickled down into something that just is like the, the perfect like bite-sized story to me of 
like I think in our reaction episode, I was like, this sort of feels like an episode of Clone Wars because of the like environmentalism that is present. And like, I think that Clone Wars and some of their arcs was pulling at that a little bit, maybe not as much as I think we would have liked, but I still think that this story, and then you obviously have the battle droids in this that are very like reminiscent of that Clone Wars era and things like that. And yeah. it just felt like a contained story. I don't know. It's like there's there's just this this continuous passing of the way that things go. And even like the way that they think about the Magina, right? Which is like their force. And I think in the behind the scenes they talked about like they created the concept of the Magina and what what is like just listening to the planet. And I think about like Ray and how she, you know, felt when she was on Octo and she went through that motion that is in The Last Jedi of like, you know, life like darkness i wow i can't even remember it now it's been a while <laughs> but the the flashing of the balance right of everything that is happening in between the world and the sky and the crashing waves and the death and everything and i think that sort of connection that these people feel is the force it's just not expressed in the same way that they would for the jedi like it is expressed in the master and the apprentice and f and the master and in the behind the scenes they say this is part of japanese culture all things have a soul and then they say the force is sort of manifested in this way that the people of that culture represent the nature and the force. And I think it's true, this concept of freeing them from something that is totally eschewing the the balance of nature and human. I mean, this the story itself is the fact that there's this balance, this like generational understanding that like this is what you do. You go up the mountain, you do this, you have this this banquet, and then you go on. But like, of course, it's cursed in this moment because it's being overtaken by an oppressive force. And how do we get back to that balance of continuing these generational stories? Just so good to me. I think that one of the other great things that the that came out of the behind the scenes features for the Village Bride was that the studio that created the short, which is Kinema Citrus, they said that their studio values the quiet, the natural, and the observant. And again, I think that kind of perfectly describes the village bride. And it was such this quiet, lovely short that was having this really kind of awful, tragic thing happen within it, in that the, you know, Haru and Asu were being taken by the separatists. I think it's separatists <laughs> or the galactic empire i'm not really sure <laughs> but they're being taken away but they're going through um all of these rituals in order to prepare for that moment to say goodbye to the land to their people their families and everything and i think that that word the observant is kind of how i felt as the audience too with this short um there are so many relationships that are at play in this episode and you've touched on a lot of them charlotte with but like f and her master trying to figure out like little pieces of their story and like who they are, where they come from, why they're there. We have our married couple, we have the sister, we have the separatist. Um, and this like observant nature, I think is kind of how I felt while watching it. But then we also have like F who is observing everything that's happening to these people, to Haru and Asu and what's going to happen to them. And it's when she finally decides to step in that things change, um, that the course of, of all of their lives kind of change on that planet and in the village and everything. And I just think that I loved how this episode 
it felt like it was kind of slowly unfolding as you were going through it. And like, we're just there watching them climb the mountain, but why are they doing that? Where are they going? I understand that there's like this ritual component to it. Oh, okay. They're seeing the memories of the planet. Okay. This feels very much like the force. Okay. Where are they going to next? And there was something just melodic about this episode, I think. And of course the music kind of really spoke to this too, but I loved how we're just kind of getting pieces of how all of these people kind of fit together and their relationships to each other and their motives and the things that were scaring them or that they were willing to do for each other. It just, it, I think you mentioned this too, Charlotte, but it feels so self-contained. And like, so I think this is what part of what Visions does so well. All of these creators and animators and directors and writers throughout all of these shorts, like I understand the story in such a short amount of time. It's honestly incredible. And like the use of these different visual languages and uh, symbolism and music that we're kind of accustomed to in Star Wars and, and also in anime. And they're all kind of coming together to create these stories that we're able to kind of latch onto immediately. And The Village Bride was just... For me, it's it was a standout in the sense that I felt so attached to kind of everything that was going on, and I felt like it left enough to the imagination to want more out of it, too, or to know that there were still kind of stones left unturned in this world, even though I feel like I understand the, the structure of it, too. And for me, I think the generational story of it, with having this kind of this married couple, this romance in it, it feels right. Like that's something we love in Star Wars is is the romance. And like seeing this couple that's going to kind of go with the separatists together, like they're not going to be separated. I remember thinking like, oh, okay. He's like not saying goodbye to her. Got it. (laughs) I'm glad they're going to be together. But then there's this other piece of it that she's got to say goodbye to her village, to her sister, to her father, to all of it. And who knows if it will actually work, like if the separatists will keep their word and I don't know. I just I thought the pieces fit really well in this story. And I like I said, I just think it was a beautiful story, too. Me, too. It was so good. If we could shift gears a little bit, I wanted to touch on this that you brought up um, in our notes, which is in the twins, which we've talked a lot about right now. I feel like the twins is a generational story in in a way that we can we think it's going to continue on and these twins that are born of the dark side where did they come from what line are they continuing what line are they starting and what happens next because they're clearly major players in this world that we're playing in and i think the concept of like creating your own destiny too is you can always change your own path is very clear but it's also like at the very end of it the the male character is like I'm always going to be attached to my my twin sister, right? Like I will always know who she is and I will always feel her and I know that she is like a part of me. And I think that that sort of familial connection is really interesting and really good. But what you wrote in the notes that I think is really interesting is that it reminds you of son and daughter in Mortis. And can you speak more to that? Oh, yeah. From Kari and on, I got such – it really reminded me of son and daughter, really more from Kare, which he he kind of reminded me – well, he kind of, they both kind of were manifestations of both son and daughter. I think like they exhibited traits that we've seen in son and daughter. But really, like at the end of the day, they were tied to each other more than kind of any morality or cause, even if 
on didn't really understand that yet. I think Kari did. And I think we saw that in the Mortis trilogy with son and daughter when daughter died. We see son visibly upset by that. She was the thing that he actually cared about and loved and daughter loved him back too. They had this sibling connection, this bond. They were a family. They loved and cared about each other and they were hurt by each other too. And son, I think was forever changed by her death. And I think that we see that kind of played out in a different way with Kare and An in the sense that you know, I think we see Kare as the the quote unquote good twin, right? He's got that visual language of Luke Skywalker. He is, of course, trying to save his sister, but he's also not saving her for any greater cause. And An brings that up, right? I think she's like, "What are you going to do? Like, give it to the Republic?" And he's like, "No, I could, I could care less. <laughs> um, I don't care about any of it. I only care that you don't die." And there's like there's that kind of selfishness in that that we kind of associate with the dark side, that selfish choice of right, it's selfish choice, like why Kari wants on to live through all of this, but because he also loves her. And yeah, it just it reminded me of son and daughter and kind of everything that happened with them. And I think there are kind of similar concepts between the two pairs. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so true. Yeah. I think another interesting pair is Lop and Ocho. I was thinking earlier about how the I was thinking a little bit about the titles of each of these and how while we see this like threesome of a family presented in Lop and Ocho, the title isn't, you know, the father Lop and Ocho, it is just Lop and Ocho. And I think it's really clear to me that this is a sister story, obviously, but the focus there is on this concept of like found family, which is we're so familiar with. And I think you and I agree that fa- the found family aspect in Star Wars has done the best in Rebels. But I think that it's done really well here too because it really hammers home this con- concept of adoption and like really coming into the family and like being considered as one of your own. And I think that with the father and like the sacrifice that happens and this divisiveness between like imperialism versus like progressing forward and things like that, it's so it was really interesting. And like this, the concept of like it's sort of unfinished business, but you know that Lop really still loves and cares for her sister and like wants to save her and bring her back, but it doesn't end in the most complete way. But I still think that this story really hammers home the concept of never giving up hope and found family is like such a strong sense of family and like perhaps maybe the strongest. And yeah, I I don't know. I, I think that this was underscored also in the behind the scenes of it all. Yeah, I think you brought up an interesting point about like how the short is just named after the sisters of Lop and Ocho when I think when you look at the short itself, it really is Lop's relationship with Ocho and her father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah, I think I hadn't really thought about it before you said that, but um, it really is about her navigating between the two of them. I think you could also – I don't know, like thinking about it from a different perspective, like maybe it's really about the father and his relationship to his two daughters and how Mm -hmm. he relates to each of them and how he loves each of them and tries to bring them back together. And that's why it's Mm -hmm. just referencing their like their two names. But it really is. I don't want to say it's like it is Lop's story. And like, I don't know. Yeah, now I can't kind of I can't stop thinking about it. But I guess because it is these two sisters and ultimately – like Lop is the one who ends 
the the short with their family's heirloom and she's the one that is I think we're led to believe going to bring Ocho back to go after her. And we'll talk about it more in the next section, but um, about like that concept of kind of the ending of this short in particular. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think this one I felt kind of tugged at the heartstrings the most in regards to like found family, adoption, true family, like all of that kind of stuff. It just – you felt the emotions from all of the characters so well. And I think we touched on this in the last section, but – because of how intricate like the animation style was and because we kind of know what we needed to know as far as like why they're on opposite sides like Ocho and her father, it really let you lean into these character dynamics between them. And Lop going to visit her father, I guess like in their their temple, their home, um, where she like finds them and he gives her their family heirloom and everything like that. It's just, it's so beautiful and ritualistic and like, there is that sense of history and time that has been spent in these places. And you feel kind of the gravity of what's happening, I think, in those moments and like how much it means to both of them, to her father and to Lop. And I don't know, there's just, there was something so touching about the story and the family unit that you want to see reunited. Also, I just have to say as like a complete aside that Ocho like cutting her finger and putting the blood on her eyes was like the coolest thing I've ever seen an evil so person cool. do in Star so Wars. True. I was like, girlfriend. Yeah, it was so cool. It was really awesome. <laughs> I was like, she did that. <laughs> but there were like several moments and visions that were like, wow, this is just straight up cool. It's so like cool. I don't know if like Star Wars is sometimes I don't know. I don't. I, sometimes I don't really think that Star Wars is like super cool. Like there's cool things that happens, obviously, but like there's some things that happen in visions where you're like, "Damn, that is just like sick." <laughs> it really is. It was badass. I was like, she just yeah. like, bit her finger, like you know, like bite my thumb at me, and put the blood on her eyes, and was like, "This is this is my path, and I've got to look the part now." <laughs> um, but I think what is cool about that too is that. Like, she made all of those visual changes to herself to step into that role Ocho did Mm -hmm. in, you know, changing her face, her makeup, cutting her hair, changing the outfit. Like, these were all clearly very symbolic and giving the braid back to Lop. It it says – it says so much, right? I think the other, of course, character that we saw do that in a very big way was Kanan in Rebels of chopping his hair to a different uh, end of the good-bad spectrum. <laughs> but <laughs> that that cutting of hair is very symbolic um, and mm-hmm. is in all kinds of media for different reasons. And yeah, I think that our family here, for me, that was the most touching. This is one of the ones that I cried in, especially at the end when you have Lop repeat what Ocho first said to her when she joined their family of something like, in a little bit of time, we'll be a real family. And then we hear mm-hmm. Lop repeat that again over the like glitching family picture of them on the beach that day. And ugh, just so it- good squeezes your heart, I think. <laughs> it totally does. Just to sort of move on to Toby Wan, since we talked about that before, I wanted to kind of bring this up again in generational stories because there's something that that binds both Lop and Ocho and Toby Wan, and that is lost fathers. And that also sort of 
binds everything in Star Wars, right? The concept of like the father figure in Star Wars is something that is explored so much. It is part of the Star Wars feeling. So it makes sense that whether that father figure is expressed in a master and apprentice sort of way, but I think in Lapanocho and Toby Wan, it is truly the father figure, you know, the father. And the the tugging at the heartstrings are are on both the sides are really interesting to me because then if we if we get into Toby Wan, he is a droid. So what does it mean to have a generational story when you are a robot? And I think that it plays into this so well because it's it's it is the Pinocchio story. We mentioned that before, that whimsy, that playfulness. But there's this assumption of yeah, this is how he's going to carry on the story of his father. And this is how he's going to bring life back to the planet in the name of his father, right? And I I think that that's like a similar sentiment that could be felt in like future installments of the Labanocho series as well, if that was a series, you know, <laughs> this concept of like bringing things back to the way they were without imperialism. And with Toby Wan, I think it is like an amazing example of a generational story because I do think we think of Pinocchio as like a, a father-son story, you know, and it, it challenges the ideas of that just because Pinocchio is a toy, but then he becomes a real boy. And so the concept of Toby Wan becoming a real boy because he becomes a Jedi and is able to save the planet based off of his father's inventions and his also his his own you know self starterness right like his ability to do all that because of what his he's been taught i don't know it really to me i think it is a generational story in underneath this vein just because the the way that toby one's father inspired him and was a jedi too it's just cool i don't know it's it, it really kind of flips the whole thing on its head well yeah and i think toby also has this conflation of father and master too and I think that is something that gets brought up a lot, especially when we're talking about like Anakin and Obi-Wan's relationship too and Qui-Gon Jinn and Anakin not having a father. He references Obi-Wan as like a father figure to him, but he wasn't really. He was his master and ultimately more of like a brother relationship. And um, I think when we're talking about like master and apprentice relationships too – that is kind of present in Toby as well. And of course, we've got kind of the more sentimental side of it too, of his master being his father too. Totally. I think something we should also mention in this section is of course the elder, because when we're talking about generational stories, that is the ultimate kind of master and apprentice relationship that we see in these shorts. And I know we said that there's something like so familiar about like the twins and Tatooine Rhapsody, but probably some of the most Star Wars, Star Wars visions is, is in the elder. And it really kind of hinges on the master and apprentice relationship. And I don't really think we've talked about this short before really so far in this episode, but this is another, it kind of, it reminds me in some ways of The Village Bride of just this kind of really quiet wandering story and we're watching this relationship between the master and apprentice and kind of how they're handling this situation that's happening on this planet with the elder, this Sith dark side user who perhaps once was a Sith. And I think that the relationship between the master and apprentice is kind of immediately 
portrayed to the audience and is something instantly recognizable. And it it does what Star Wars does so well, right? Of kind of dropping you into the middle of the story and like they're already en route to this planet on this mission. And I think that this the Elder wasn't my favorite initially when I went through on my first couple of watches. But I think after watching the behind the scenes features of this episode and from particularly the director of the elder i had a much greater appreciation for this episode and kind of everything it represented for the director who i believe was like about to retire and he decided to uh, create this short as one of his last creations within the studio before he retired and when you listen to him talk about this episode he talks about it as like it kind of became his own reflection on his life as an animator and director and writer and what he like that he was once an apprentice and now was a master and is teaching other apprentices and it was clear that this like this episode felt the most personal in a lot of ways when i learned more about the creators behind the this short and i think I don't know. It just it felt like when we're talking about generational stories and like passing on Star Wars to your kids, the next generation under you, um, like what memories, what nostalgia you have of Star Wars. The Elder kind of combined with the way that the director talked about it in relation to his own career and his own love of Star Wars too. It all felt very wrapped up, like very neatly, and it made a lot of sense to me. And I felt a lot of that like love and nostalgia and in some ways that like bittersweetness of closing a chapter in your life. And I think we kind of see that in the Master and Apprentice in this episode and kind of that like they've closed a chapter in their own journey together and kind of I think like the story asks you to think that like perhaps there are more dark side users out there that they don't know about, right? And so, you know, something has shifted in the galaxy kind of sense. But also between the Master and Apprentice themselves, like they've gone through this really intense thing, like Dan almost died um, at the hand of this elder. And I don't know. I just I think that this episode in particular kind of had all those layers when we look at the creator versus the story and kind of how the elder fits into the larger Star Wars language and visual language. They all kind of, I think, fold in really nicely together. And at the core of it is that master-apprentice relationship that we know so well through so many iterations of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Which in a way is not in a way. It is generational because that ma- master and apprentice, hopefully that apprentice will become a master and then uh, yeah. and so on and so on. It's just generational in a different way. Yeah. I will say that the elder had probably one of my favorite lines in all of the vision shorts, which was the master at the end of it telling Dan, you must not forget your training and also you must not forget your kindness. And mm-hmm. I just- the best. I love that. I, I'm sure I mentioned it in our first reaction episode, but I I just I love that line and the way that it's delivered. What is his name? Dan, David Harbor. David Harbor. Yeah. David Harbor. Yeah. He he's in the um in the English version. He's the voice of the master, and the way that he says that line is just both of those characters, and particularly the master, have that very quiet, wizened, think before you speak kind of mentality to them. That energy. And I just loved the delivery of that line. And I was like, oh, yes, that's so Star Wars. I love it. It is so good. Let's talk a little bit about the duel as a generational story, because I think this one is kind of harder to describe as to why it is generational. But I think there are several elements that sort of make up that 
what we think of as a generational story. And to me, the thing that really stands out is at the end when the Ronin gives a crystal to the chief of the town, who is a, a young boy, which I thought was really an interesting addition, right? Like n- number one, and they make fun of it too, about the fact that a kid is leading the town. But I think that there's there was a lot there about like strength in the fact that the town is protected by someone else. So anyway, the crystal is given to ward off evil. So it makes you think about like, okay, so what's next? How will this crystal Number one, it's a red crystal. So that's really intriguing. But how will that ward off evil? And how is that going to be used for protection for the generations to come? And then later, it's just you 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 consider as a sort of a, a mythological sense of like, how will this story of this Ronan saving this town be told to others as like a warning, <laughs> I guess? How do you think about it as a generational story, Caitlin? I think it's... I find it hard to talk about right now while kind of reading I know, that's the other itself, thing. right? Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like, yeah. oh, well, they talk about this in the story. And I'm like, well, I, I don't really – can't really talk about that yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ronan has this feeling of like – or the duel, I should say, of like history, of like time mm-hmm. has passed. Battles have been fought. People have – seen things, learned things. They've like it has this myth and legend kind of feel to it, I think, that some of the other shorts don't. And I think in a lot of ways, just kind of that tone makes you think of generational stories and what they all know or think they know about the Sith, about red lightsabers, about kyber crystals and everything like that. And even the evil Sith woman, you know, she's your your lightsaber is red, like you're a Sith. And I mean, is he a Sith? We don't really know. Was he a Sith? We saw that with the Elder. Like, they talk about how the Elder could have been a Sith. Not that these are related universes at all in that sense, but, like, that idea, right? And I don't know. There's something, like, there's so much that we don't know in that world building that we kind of see in other shorts. But in a way, because of, like, the animation style and the tone of it and what we see the characters themselves doing, the fact that he does have a red lightsaber, I think that's what kind of makes you think that there's, like, this greater story kind of underneath it all. And I think that kind of is giving you the generational vibe to it. But there are also pieces of it that are coming up in Ronin, the novel as well, that I don't want to spoil or yeah, lean don't. into too much. <laughs> but I think I think you totally nailed it with the sense of history. And I think that is reflected in the fact that the animation style, like what we talked about before, is super reminiscent of a history before it. There's just this concept of this is important or this is something that has been passed along, even if it's a brand new animated short. It like that it just in the meta sense, right? But then also yeah. just the fact that there's a sense of history grounded into it. And again, we're going to talk about this more when we talk about Ronan, the novel. So I don't want to spoil too much. I don't want to get too far into it, but I thought that we should mention it since it does kick off everything in the Visions shorts. Yeah, it does. Should we move on to talk about part three? Yes. Master. Okay, welcome to part three, which we've titled Breadth of Play. And 
Charlotte said this is our new favorite phrase. It's really my new favorite phrase. It's Caitlin's new favorite phrase. She said it a ton when we were in California, and I think you have to tell the story as to why. (laughs) This came about from our conversation with the creators from Lego Terrifying Tales. So if you haven't listened to that yet, it's a super fun little interview that we actually did in a hotel room during our trip (laughs) to California. But in it, one of the creators, I I can't remember who, unfortunately, right now, but he mentioned, I think our question had been something like, what is it about Lego, right? And he had said something about that Lego has the breadth of play for Star Wars and kind of the Lego humor in it. And I just, I feel like if you've listened to Sky Talkers, you know that we really like to latch on to certain phrases and just really roll with them. And I'm here to tell you now, breadth of play is going to be my new... (laughs) (laughs) phrase. Um, And I remember wishing that we had had more time to kind of unpack that phrase with him because I think that, and like Charlotte said, I really did talk about this throughout our entire trip in California whenever we were kind of talking about Star Wars. We even went to like this pretty fancy restaurant and we were talking about the menu afterwards and I was like, it's got breadth of play. (laughs) But it did though. It did. (laughs) It did. Yeah. So when Charlotte and I were talking about this episode for Visions and kind of deciding how to split it out into our three sections, we were really kind of struggling with the last section, what it was going to be about. Was it going to be kind of a a pretty concrete theme like our last two sections of, you know, visuals, generational stories? What was it going to be? And I think something that we kind of landed back on was, you know, Star Wars Visions for as quote unquote non-canon as it is. It has that essence of Star Wars and it has that Star Wars feeling. And that's something we're all always talking about of what is the Star Wars feeling? How do you know when something has it? How do you know when something doesn't? And it's not its not a checklist. <laughs> you can't checklist the Star Wars feeling into new Star Wars content. And for me, I think I've landed on it. <laughs> and I think it's this concept of breadth of play. And that is what we see in Star Wars Visions is a breadth of play of people just being allowed to do it, whatever it is, and just go with it and make it super ornate like Lop and Ocho with these incredible backgrounds to do it, make it kind of like super experimental in a lot of ways with like the visuals and music and Akakiri, the whole story of Ronin and the or the duel and the, the visuals of that. And I think that this concept of breadth of play, it really has been something I've kind of been rolling over and over in my head since we first heard it. And I kind of love that it like came directly from Lego Terrifying Tales, which is also this like non-canon addition into the Star Wars vernacular. It just feels like it makes so much sense. And it feels really connected to these terms of like essence and um, like what the essence of Star Wars is and the fact that it is kind of unconnected. It's untethered to the rest of the Star Wars universe. I don't know, it it felt right to kind of round out this discussion of visions to talk about why it works so well. And in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like we've been talking about that through this episode, but to kind of put it all in this section, almost like our old school, like catch all section, <laughs> that's kind of what it feels like in some ways. So that's my introduction on breadth of play. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that we really wanted, at least I did, there's something about visions that feels so special to me. And I touched on this in our reaction about this imaginative nature of taking something that is so the essence of Star Wars and presenting it in a new way or 
say we just like flipped it on its head and added a couple new elements or added some new ingredients and it still remains the essence of it, but it also creates something completely new and separate. And I just wanted to talk about that and talk about it specifically with some of the shorts. But I think what was nice is that Caitlin latched onto this phrase and it really does sort of like the the creators, I think that I don't know if Caitlin like fully described what breadth of play is. It really is a creator has the ability to play like it's another word for like the sandbox, right? That ability to sort of play with things that are already there, but bring in something new. And I think that it's I don't know. I think that the way that these Star Wars creators now with all these different Japanese anime studios have come into Star Wars and have participated in what James Wall called the remix culture. But it was them having this ability to sort of explore all these different essences of what it is and in this like untethered, like Caitlin said, this unconnected, non-canon way. I'm so... I really didn't want to bring up not canon into this conversation at all. Like another thing, Caitlin and I were really like conscious that we didn't want to bring that up with the creators when we talked to um, the producers about visions too, because it doesn't really seem like it's the topic of conversation as much. Like it doesn't really seem like we needed to talk about how these shorts are not canon, but there's another way to go about it in talking about how this, the, the stories themselves are so imaginative because they don't play within a really small box, but instead a huge warehouse, right? And they're like discovering all these different things and putting the different essence on it. Um, And like the way that different creators are able to participate in this breadth of play is just so interesting to me. And I think a really good example of that is something like with the ninth Jedi and the ninth Jedi was originally supposed to be two separate things, a saber Smith story. And then the Jedi story that comes later and they were like totally separate. And then Lucasfilm is like, no, like I, maybe you should explore putting this together and we can try that. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but we'll give you the freedom to make it a little bit longer. And to have that ability to explore such a a story that became such a rich story and something that is going to be beloved for like years to come, because truly I feel like most people are talking about this. And it's also clearly been something that has been iterated upon a lot, right? Like because there is that room for that breath of play within this really imaginative story, it's just so special. And I think that you can say that about every single one of these Star Wars Visions shorts, but I think the Ninth Jedi to me sticks out in this conversation a lot. And like Caitlin said, like, yeah, I think perhaps when we talk about things that aren't, are quote unquote, like un, not canon or like live under the Visions banner or even the Legends banner or something that is playing with the elements of Star Wars, but isn't necessarily like the Skywalker story. They, it's It's just a joy to be able to experience that and as a fan it's like I know it can be hard sometimes to like get not get caught up into like okay but what does it mean for my favorite character and things like that but it's it's way more fun I think to consider how how does it how does this make me think about Star Wars in a different way those stories that I love are still there and the way that it has been how the way that these creators have participated in like that remix culture right like how does it make me look upon the stories that I know so well with new eyes and new light like what Caitlin and I were even talking about before like what would it have been like if in the rise of Skywalker this 
we had this sort of lightsaber situation. Like, wow, that would have been so cool. But we would have never been able to talk about that before. And I I just think it's really cool. Yeah, there's something about it being kind of it's like you right we use the sandbox metaphor it's like they're in a completely different sensory table (laughs) (laughs) they're in like a water table or like a table with beans or something like that like there's something else (laughs) entirely going on that this the box that they're playing in is not even the same box (laughs) but they're all in the same (laughs) playground right (laughs) yeah yeah that's what I meant by the warehouse and the box it was just like you know yeah I don't know. <laughs> There's something really nice too and in a lot of ways that kind of forces you to strip it down to that essence of what Star Wars is because – and I don't think Star Wars does this really but like it's not bogged down by those connections of those quote-unquote Easter eggs of making sure that it is – like logical in the greater story, like even when you're looking at like things like the politics of like who's in charge and all of that. And you've kind of heard us stumble through that some in this episode of like, oh, was it Separatist or was it Republic? Was it Empire? I can't remember. And like, it doesn't really matter because like we have the context of good guys, bad guys. And that's, you know, in some ways kind of the foundation of Star Wars and and how we kind of start to approach certain characters as far as their motives and, and who they are and what they're trying to do in a story. And so I think it's really great to kind of take all of this visual language, this understanding of what Star Wars has been for the past 40 plus years and be able to just do something really wild with it and not need it to be in a sandbox, but be in the playground. And I think like you bring up the ninth Jedi is a really great example of that. And just that, right. Like they were going to have two shorts and like they, I think they had said that all of the animation studios had originally been given like, I think nine to 15 minutes of time or like 12 to 15, I think depending on studio and, you know, once they saw what the story was from ninth Jedi, it was like, no, there's an opportunity to, maybe combine these, do something longer. I think Ninth Jedi is like 22, 23 minutes, something like that. And really kind of make it like more grandiose, give it more fleshing out of that narrative to connect the two. And I think it worked. Obviously, I think it worked really well because I freaking love Ninth Jedi. (laughs) Me too. It's so good. There was something else that I wanted to kind of go through in this section and you're just listener, you're just gonna have to go with me on this because <laughs> I've been thinking about some of these terms a lot in the past couple weeks and it's all kind of mush in my brain. So this is me thinking out loud about these terms that I'm gonna be talking about. So here we go. <laughs> Let's go. Let's, Let's get go. into it. <laughs> oh, so <laughs> I feel like this is gonna be one of those like uh you know, what is the dark side discussion where we're just kind of talking in circles. At least that's how it's been going through my brain the past couple of weeks of like very kind of abstract concepts and how they relate to Star Wars. So this section, right, it's about like how visions fits into the essence of Star Wars and how that term breath of play kind of fits into the essence and Star Wars feeling. And so, of course, I found myself thinking, okay, like what actually is the Star Wars essence? What is the Star Wars feeling? What is it to me? And of course, I end up thinking a lot about like what we talk about here on Sky Talkers because this is Star Wars to me. (laughs) It's the podcast. It's Charlotte. It's like our whole relationship to the franchise. It's all of that, right? And it's going to be different for everyone. But one of the things that the director of Lapin Ocho talked about in his behind the scenes feature was the concept of Wabi Sabi and how this is 
uh, brought up in kind of the conclusion or lack of concrete conclusion to Lapin Ocho. And Wabi Sabi is something that I had heard of before, but I didn't have a, kind of a full understanding of what it meant or really what it was. It was just it was something that I recognized and that was really kind of the end of it. <laughs> but the term wabi-sabi, it comes from Japan and the rough idea of wabi-sabi is something incomplete or lacking something. And I think the director was kind of talking about it in terms of the ending of Lapin Ocho and the fact that they are not reunited. And this is something that we kind of see in a lot of the shorts and was even something we asked in our uh, interview with the producers mm-hmm. about the lack of kind of defined concrete ending. And so I really loved that the director of Lapin Ocho brought this up. And My question when I was writing our notes was, is there something in this definition, in this feeling of wabi-sabi that is tied to Star Wars? And this is really kind of what got my brain (laughs) moving about, okay, what is Star Wars? Like, what is it about that ending of Lapin Ocho? What even is wabi-sabi? And can it relate to how I think about Star Wars and its characters and this kind of never ending story. And the director goes on to say that like he hopes that the audience wants Lop and Ocho to be reunited. And he even says, I feel like they're reunited. And there's this kind of like hopefulness to it, but you're still kind of left on the edge in that it didn't end, that you don't know what happened. And I found myself thinking a lot about Star Wars and we've talked about this before about like we're never gonna see the end of Star Wars because it's just going to keep going and like these Mm -hmm. characters will always be revisited. And some of these characters that we start their story now, they'll be revisited in 70 years when I'm probably not here anymore. And it'll be like a whole new chapter added to the understanding of who that character is that I'll just never be a part of. And there's something like bittersweet about that, but also like the sweetness is that, Oh, like so great. Like star Wars is still, going forward, right? So I wanted to talk a little bit more about kind of the concepts of wabi-sabi. And this is from Wikipedia and some of the different things that they say about the translation of it, because um, it doesn't have necessarily a direct translation into English. But characteristics of wabi-sabi aesthetics and principles include asymmetry, roughness, simplicity, economy, austerity, modesty, intimacy, and the appreciation of both natural objects and the forces of nature. They also talk about how um, wabi-sabi, if an object or expression can bring about within us a sense of serene melancholy and a spiritual longing, then that object could be said to be wabi-sabi. And wabi-sabi nurtures all that is authentic by acknowledging three simple realities. Nothing lasts, nothing is finished, and nothing is perfect. And they also talk about how like through history, wabi-sabi originally had kind of in some ways, a more melancholic definition, but throughout time, it's kind of taken on this almost like in a way like our discussions with Kintsugi, like way back before the rise of Skywalker of like beautiful imperfections and kind of like what I was saying about like that bittersweetness of the story never ending and never getting to see the end. But wow, that's so great because the story is still continuing and that generational like new generations are watching Star Wars too. 
And then I'm still going. So <laughs> this like concept of wabi-sabi then brought me to the concept of mono no aware, which is another Japanese term that means the pathos of all things and is translated directly as an empathy toward things or a sensitivity to ephemera. And it's a Japanese term for the awareness of impermanence or transience of things and both a, tra- quote, a transient gentle sadness or wistfulness at their passing, as well as a longer, deeper, gentle sadness about this state being the reality of life. And, you know, on Skytalkers, we say a lot like Star Wars is tragedy, right? Like that's that's going to live right alongside Breath of Play, I think, for us <laughs> for forever on our show. And usually when we're talking about that phrase seriously, because we certainly kind of talk about it tongue in cheek whenever something sad or angsty happens in Star Wars. But I think when we're talking about it seriously, like you and I often talk about it in the sense of like the Greek tragedy and like kind of the whole connotation of that genre of story. But I think there is also something to be said about the literalness of that phrase too of Star Wars is tragedy and that angstiness that is really found in it and like the familial connections and kind of tragedies that happen throughout all of our characters' lives because that's kind of the nature of a story. And I think that these concepts of wabi-sabi and mono no aware kind of live within that feeling too of Star Wars is tragedy. And in a lot of ways, I think kind of encompass how we think about that phrase of Star Wars is tragedy of, yes, there are these tragic things. There's this impermanence. There's this imperfection to these stories kind of in the real world, but also like to the characters themselves. But then there's something beautiful about them too, because we live in a world where we get to like talk about how Star Wars exists and how it's made and also how like impactful the characters are. Like we get to talk about it both, like how the characters, like what they mean to us in the real world, but also like what they mean to the story and like kind of breaking it down like a narrative to it. I don't know. I it like I said, this has been like on my brain for a while. And I just kind of think that they all live together. And I think that him, the director of Lop and Ocho bringing up this term of Wabi Sabi, it just kind of really thinking about the essence and Star Wars feeling and all of that. I was like, yeah, I think that this feels like something that is within my definition of Star Wars, of like the the story itself as a narrative, but also how it is in my life. Because I think within Wabi Sabi and Mono No Aware, there's also this like feeling of like our discussion of nostalgia and like how you feel about how you felt about Star Wars when you were a kid, right? Like that's a bad sentence, but like that nostalgia of your first memory of seeing Star Wars or of it clicking for you or of you loving it, like it's such this beautiful memory but it's a one-time memory. Like you can't repeat that feeling and there's something wistful about that whole experience. I don't know. Like I said, it's like mush in my head, but I also did want to mention that um, the author of The Legend of Luke Skywalker, Ken Liu, he wrote a short story called Mono No Aware, which won the Hugo Award for Best Short Story in 2013. And if you're interested in like this term and kind of how it feels in a narrative, I think this short story, obviously it it won like the award for best short story. It was so good. I cried when I read it. Um, I thought it was really great. But anyway, I, to wrap it up, I think in some kind of coherent fashion, I feel like these terms, all of these terms feel like they're connected to Star Wars vision and in essence, all feel like they are connected to Star Wars. And I think this is part of me trying to explain what I love about Star Wars and also why I think that Star Wars Visions is inherently 
Star Wars. It's interesting because the ter- the name Star Wars Vision, it is a vision, these creators own vision of Star Wars, right? And I think to have a concept and a term like wabi-sabi, I'm like you, I hadn't I've heard of it before but hadn't explored it that much and it's funny when you google it, it's like why is this definition so hard to nail down? I don't really like it has changed so much, the philosophy, the aesthetics, it's two separate things but also the same. And I, I think that what it really comes down to is this concept of impermanence. And I think that it's interesting that you bring up melancholy because when you were talking, I was thinking about romantic authors. And when I say romantic, I mean like late 1800s authors like John Keats um, and Byron and things like that. And their poetry all, always references, and I've talked about it before on the show before. So like if you're a longtime listener, you're like, oh my God, here she goes again. But <laughs> you, you talk about melancholy and you know, ode to a Grecian urn or just an ode to autumn and things like the concept of autumn or things dying and then continuing on in the cyclical nature. I think that's also what Wabi Sabi is getting at. It's a little less dark than melancholy, I think. Um, And I think that's why it aligns really well with the Star Wars feeling because Melancholy isn't necessarily what Star Wars is to me, but this impermanence or imperfection or this like generational story that is like never ending, like you mentioned, or like constantly continuing, but also imperfect because I think you and I both think Star Wars is pretty imperfect, right? But also perfect in its like storytelling. It's it's hard to talk about, right? And I think that when it's – the, the concept of wabi-sabi, this imperfection, this impermanence, this incomplete nature, living side by side by this continuing generational story that's just never ending and never stopping, it is part of that Star Wars feeling. And to have this term, it's really helpful. And you're so right that I do think it lives with the Star Wars tragedy of it all. It's less extreme, but it is part of it. And this mono no aware, I think it's aware, by the way, Caitlin, I think aware maybe, I'm not sure. I, we both don't speak Japanese. And I think that this like, empathy towards things. It's like, that's also what Star Wars is to me, or this transient nature of things. And that goes back to the, like I said, the title, Star Wars Visions. It's this like prism in which all these different creators see Star Wars through. And how, I don't know, this, the very fact that these, these shorts are only 20 minutes long too. They're, they're going to continue on in some way, whether it's in your imagination or like on screen somewhere. And I think that's also a big thing about Star Wars is the, the playing with your own imagination. And I think I've been a broken record in talking about like what happens when you watch something and then you're like, you want to attach certain things and it's like the imagination of it all. But I do think that this more than a lot of new Star Wars, to me, this felt so imaginative and it felt so creative for me to be able to think about how I can revisit my favorite Star Wars stories in a new light. And I think that that's also part of these concepts that you're talking about, Keelan, that I think are just really baked into the culture, the Japanese culture. And that's why it's so valuable to have these storytellers bring these stories into Star Wars because we've mentioned it, but Star Wars is inspired by Japanese storytelling. So then when we have Japanese storytellers telling Star Wars, it's part of this cyclical nature and not cyclical because I think that has a negative tone, but the cycle of you inspired me, I inspired by you, and then here's how we give back to each other. I think that's why this partnership and this Star Wars visions just works so well for me personally, because I can feel that, that sense of respect from both sides and 
this this sense of creativity that comes from it, that breath of play, that's what it is. This ability to play within the bounds and the terminology that is so rooted in the aesthetics of wabi-sabi. It's just like, it's so cool to me. It's just awesome. I'm so glad that you brought this up, Keelan. Yeah, I think that it's like one of the definitions of wabi-sabi talked about like things having patina and wear on them yeah. and like in a part of the aesthetic like you were mentioning. And I think in a lot of ways, like that's Star Wars, like Star Wars has mm-hmm. patina on it. And like, that's part of why this all works in a lot of ways. And like you were talking about, like with the, you know, like this Star Wars itself is inspired by Japanese storytelling. And so that Japanese storytelling originally would have probably had elements of these concepts baked into it itself. And so then it's put into Star Wars. And then we Mm -hmm. now have Japanese studios that are making explicitly Star Wars stories now that are also adding back in these concepts of things like Wabi Sabi. And I don't know, it, it works so well and in a lot of ways like thinking about these concepts like it made me think about these stories and like how many of these characters do like it feels like they're just kind of drifting off and like their story is continuing but I'm just not viewing it as the audience member anymore like that's like I think that's a testament to the creators of just how like lifelike not lifelike but like how attached I became to them so quickly that for me, like the characters are still living on in their worlds and like Lop is going after Ocho, but I'm just not a part of that story anymore. Like I've seen the piece that I'm supposed to see. And in some ways it kind of makes me not want continuations of these stories. Like I know that feels weird to say, but I don't know. There's this, I agree because I think that the impermanence of it all is an essence of wabi-sabi. And if I want to attach myself to that concept that is clearly an inspiration since one of the creators talked about it, then I don't think that that necessarily fits in. But at the same time, Star Wars keeps adding to it. And I do think that it is playing into that concept as well. So I don't know. And I want more Star Wars. So it's I, I, (laughs) I agree with you, though, about how like when you start thinking about these things, sorry for the noise in the back. You just you, – you kind of come down on like, oh, I like the impermanence of it all. And I yeah. think that is the concept and that's why people buy into the, this sort of philosophy. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention is you had also talked about how the stories feel like they're being – they're lived in, they're living on. One thing that we didn't talk about in the art style that I think relates to this conversation is that in at least two of these shorts, there was illustrations of like Jedi from the past or – like a, 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 a storytelling aspect of like drawings and things like that. And that is so meta. That is so postmodern to me that yeah. that's the concept of like living on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like I just want like a brand new season two in some ways of just all brand new stories and to see what new, what new things we get. I don't know. I just – yeah, I loved it. I loved it all. Yeah, I think this this whole kind of last section, it was just – really kind of seeing if we can articulate what it is about this and largely about Star Wars too that keeps us coming back to it. How do we talk about it? And how do we talk about it in a narrative sense, but also in how it relates to us in the real world? Because those are intrinsically tied. And I think any hardcore Star Wars fan feels that. That's I think that's part of why you're here, <laughs> why you're listening, is because of the narrative and also because of the real world implications of what Star Wars means to you. And I think that 
I don't think I expected Star Wars Visions to do that for me or to really get me to think about this more in depth. And honestly, I really have in a long time, but it absolutely did. And like I said, I think that's such a testament to how fun and creative and thought provoking and compelling it all was. And I'm so grateful too that we got to hear from the creators themselves too um, about each of the shorts because that that's part of it for me, for us of Star Wars is hearing creators talk about what they love in storytelling and in Star Wars. And we got both in, in Star Wars Visions. And so it's like perfect <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> so true. And I, I really hope that we do more with it and see more things like it. And I this this was one of the top things I was looking forward to in 2020. I think if you go back to our anniversary episode, we got a question about what are you looking forward to in 2021? And I think my number one was Visions. And I feel good about that. And <laughs> it definitely lived up to my expectation. And I don't even – I don't know what my expectation was for it because I really didn't have an expectation for Visions. But I knew it was going to be cool or I really wanted it to be super cool. And it – far exceeded, I think, what my imagination could have come up with for it. Yeah. I think the best case scenario for me would be, like you said, a whole new season of new shorts, but then a continuation of like what we've always wanted, which is an anime style Star Wars movie put on Disney Plus. And I, or like in the movie theater, oh my God, it would be so great. I just think that what they have going on here is just so creative. It's so cool. And, you know, even just talking about just one more last thing about Wabi Sabi. Okay. In that the the concept of like, it ends with Lop, right. When, and Lop and Ocho of it, it doesn't have a concrete ending, but you're left knowing that she is going to like with her own conviction, bring her sister home and like bring her sister back or like, finish what she started right and like the the fact that in the beginning when we heard that these these episodes were going to be like somewhere between 13 and 20 minutes long it was sort of like okay like that's fine but it would have been nice if it was like 30 minutes long you know yeah. and I think that it's and, it, and I don't feel that way about each of these shorts at all I feel like they're perfect length like I'm a huge advocate of like the short story anyway. Like I think that if you have a story to tell, you can do it so well in the short form as well. But I I will not lie and say that I in the beginning I was like, "Oh, I want to live in this world forever," right? Yeah. And I think that the the just to reassure my past self that like <laughs> that's part of the concept of wabi-sabi is like wanting more is the understanding that it just continues on and yeah. I, I just – I loved it too. It just to wrap it up, I was super excited about Visions. We both were and it really did exceed my expectations and I can't wait to ret- return to them so much. That's the other thing about the length is that it really does make it a bite-sized watch of like, oh, I'm going to dive into this story that's like super deep, super meaningful, so beautifully animated without <laughs> like a ton of other baggage and it's, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> I've definitely done that like – Six times for Akakiri. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. <laughs> and the Village Bride too. But Akakiri, for some reason, I just keep returning to. They also, if you are not aware, they have the soundtrack for Star Wars Visions is available on Spotify. So if you love the music, especially the Village Bride music, mm, so good. 
you can listen to it now. And that's what I've been doing a lot of actually is listening to the soundtrack kind of over and over again. I need to do that. I, you know, it would be so awesome if they released it on vinyl. Oh, that that I was going to say like a, like the Galaxy of Sounds kind of thing. Oh, that would be cool too. But yeah, I loved Galaxy of Sounds, by the way. Just mentioning it there. That was a nice surprise. Anyway, <laughs> Star Wars Visions was amazing. Caitlin, do you have anything else to add before we wrap up? I don't think so. I hope this episode is worth the wait, you guys. Um, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed our John Favreau story <laughs> and our discussion on Visions. We really loved it. I hope you guys had a good time with it too. I've loved seeing kind of everyone's favorites like changing the longer they've lived with Visions or not changing at all. It's always so fun. But we will be coming back with our final episode kind of in this trilogy of Visions episode where we will be talking about the novel Ronin. So we're both reading it right now and enjoying it a lot. So be on the lookout for that coming soon. Yeah, I'm super excited about that. The book is so unique and I think that we're going to have a really good time discussing it. So I think that is going to wrap up this episode. I hope you guys liked it. And yeah, if you want to talk about Visions or anything else Star Wars, you can find us online at Twitter at SkyDockersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Clarity. We also have our website, SkyTalkers.com, where you can find our merch, which is super fun uh, with our semi-new logo on (laughs) mugs or t-shirts or totes really anything you want that is available directly through skytalkers.com we also have our instagram and uh, a tiktok account if you want to find us on those social media platforms or facebook too we have a facebook as well and if you have not left us a review yet on itunes we would love it if you took a second to go and do that it helps other people find our show and if you're interested in other ways to support us you can head on over to our patreon and check out our reward tiers there actually directly after recording this charlotte and i are going to our october film club viewing where we are watching halloween town with our patreon with our patrons and I'm just going to share the reason why we're watching Halloween Town (laughs) because I think it's really fun. The director of Halloween Town was an editor on all of the original trilogy of Star Wars, which is crazy. And then, of course, the Debbie Reynolds connection. And and Debbie Reynolds. Yeah, I was going to say that, too. And Debbie Reynolds is in the film, too. But in our Discord, we were all talking about – because for our first film club, we watched Yojimbo in honor of Visions coming out in September. That was our first film club month. And we were talking about what our October one should be, and we were all talking about, like, scary movies and stuff like that. And I – do not like scary movies. And I was like, LOL, what if we watched Halloween Town? And we're like, oh, well, there's obviously the Debbie Reynolds connection to Star Wars. And we're like, oh, great. Not that any, not that our film club films are always going to have a Star Wars connection, but it's fun when they do. And I wikipedia it. And not only is it Debbie Reynolds, but the director was like an editor on all of the original trilogy and like very involved and like (laughs) really good friends with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and like all these people. And it was the discord. We were all shocked. And now we're watching Halloween town uh, this evening. (laughs) So if you want to be a part of that, uh, you can check out our Patreon and our different rewards here there and get involved in our discord community. Yes. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons. Jackson, Joey, Mike, Lauren, Neil, Suara, Kelly, Diana, Susanna, Cherie, Katie, Sarah, Becca, and Z. Thank you so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. 
Yes, thank you guys so much. And as always, until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you.